Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I am here with my great friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm quite well, thanks. How are you? So like I said, the name of the show is So Very Wrong About Games. We talk about board games and related therein stuff. What related stuff do we talk about? I don't know. Okay. You know, stuff in the gaming world, you know, how publishers are and not just, how they about, be. just not about the board game. How themselves. publishers be. How publishers be. So first thing we're going to do is gonna we're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, which was Kemet. Then we're going to talk about games that we played this week. We're going to talk about some news and why it really doesn't matter. And because we're still on the summer schedule, we will not have a main game, but instead have a topic, which is loosely called, What Would I Have Done Had I Gone to Gen Con 2019? Mark. So the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus, is appropriate enough about Kemet, which has been somewhat in the news lately. Uh, Shut Up and Sit Down, who very kindly invited us to their very swanky gathering in October, put out a review of the expansions. And when we talked about Kemet, we addressed that, because now that there are two expansions out for Kemet, uh, Seth had not yet been, well, set, uh, aspirated T, whatever, pronunciation, bugbear, leave it alone, had not yet been released, but we've tried that since. And now there's a whole bunch of modules and tacity and, and set itself on top of what is itself already a game with lots of stuff. It's not a complicated game, but as we pointed out in the review, Kemet is not really exclusively a dudes on a map game. It's a game about shopping. This is how I always conceptualize it. It's about buying toys. It's about deploying toys. It's about leveraging toys. It's about making friends with giant scorpions and cutting deals with people at night uh, by sacrificing a couple of your guys for eternal power. You know, real life stuff. Exactly, because what we've always raged about is how nicely the board is laid out and everyone's just as close to everyone else as it is. So it's not so much as, uh, you know, area majority or, you know, holding the, the defense. It's just about like you said, deploying your toys and playing with really cool giant monsters. And attacking transactionally. That's one of the things that we always harp on about. We talked about Dudes on a Map Games as, as its own separate topic. you know. We're, and I talked about this in the top context of Tsukuyumi a couple weeks ago, right? Tsukuyumi's victory conditions are largely, although not exclusively, at holding dirt. And I'm very dubious about games where the victory condition is holding dirt because they tend to lead to all kinds of problems. And Kemet remains to this day, I think, the textbook example of how to do a dudes on a map game while avoiding a lot of the standard king-making, king of the hill, A fights B and C wins, etc., etc., etc. problems. It's dynamic, it's fluid, it's weird in a good way, and it's compelling every time I play it. And we've been pulling it out not infrequently ever since we reviewed it. It's you definitely just, you part just of the played staple. It, you just played it this week? Spoilers. Spoilers. And it's it's a little bit like a, uh, a engine-building game. You know, you're you're buying all these powers that are going to give you more prayer points, will let you do more stuff, will give you more actions at night, which will do all sorts of stuff. It's just an all-round great game that's well uh, produced. Like, all the miniatures are great, they come shaded, all sorts of, like we already talked about, two expansions already out for it, which are both pretty good. Yeah. Parts of, parts of each are good. Sure. How's that? <laughs> that sounds reasonable. And that is the game we reviewed last year, Kemet by Madagot Games. Now on to the games we played this week. This week, Walker, I played Kemet. And sure enough, there was the standard discussion about how to play. And as is almost always the case, there was one player who hadn't played in a considerable period of time, a couple of players who hadn't played for some months, and of those, some of them didn't feel comfortable jumping into the deep end. So naturally, we we resorted to, I think, what is basically our favorite way to play, which is black tiles from Tassati 
nothing else from Tacity and leave the 1v all stuff from set off to the side because that really wants experienced players because it's kind of bizarre and it fudges with things a little bit. And the one module from Tacity that is just the easiest to port over is the black tiles, even though it adds a considerable amount of detail because all of the black power tiles, yes, it's unfortunate to call them black power, but, you know, they started with white power, so whatever. But you can ignore them if you want, you know. A new player can be just be like, well, uh, give me the five-second rundown on what all the different color powers do, and you can do that to them, and then they can be like, all right, just warn me when you're about to deploy nonsense against me. And that works kind of okay. I'm not going to say that a new player can jump in with, with both feet in those conditions, but it's certainly not as daunting as, say, I don't know, a Pax Renaissance or something of that nature. So a great time was had by all. This was this was recommended in particular by someone who is, uh, shall we say, cutthroat in the extreme. And very much like you want out of a game like this, it was knives out right from the beginning. I think in the first round I was attacked four times. But Despite that, unlike a lot of other even engine buildery dudes in the map games, I wasn't crippled by that and I was able to come back precisely because of how fluid and dynamic Kemet is. So suffice to say that a good time was had by all. Kemet remains in rotation and rather than retread anything said in the Euryurus, let's just leave it at that. That was Kemet. I got to play a game called Tower of Babel by, don't tell me, uh, Cosmos. Was it Cosmos? No, what did I say? Hansom Glork. Hansom Gluck, that's it, sorry. It was one of those, you know, ancient publishers that are still around today, which is fabulous because they put out great games. Anyway, what Tower of Babel sort of breaks down to is a little more advanced game of Skull because it breaks down to that really key bid. Like when you're about to like call out a number, you're in Tower of Babel, you're putting out, you're getting ready this hand of cards and you want it to be just the right number that you know, you want the person to either pass on it or take you up on it, just like in Skull, right? So they say, I'm going to build this wonder. It takes, say, four camels. Everyone has this huge hand of cards, and everyone decides whether or not they're going to help you with camels or not. So everyone reveals cards at the same time, and then you decide if you're going to let people help you or if you're going to build it, and the people that you deny are going to get victory points based on how many car- how many camels they showed, and people that uh, helped you get a little bit of real estate at that, you know, where the the wonder is. And then, of course, all the wonders, it's once all the wonders are completed, then whoever has the most real estate there is going to get some points. And then all the different wonders are colors. And at the end of the game, you're going to get points based on how many, you know, numbers of a certain color you have. And all around, I thought it was a great game, especially for the amount of time it took, you know, uh, once all the color, all the colors of a certain um, one door are gone, then the game will end, and it worked out fairly well. Very unusually for a Euro game, it has one, the major element of the game. What you're mo- what you're doing most of the time in Tower of Babel is something that I have not seen repeated quite in that way, which is extremely unusual. The last time I remember talking about a Euro game in the context of this podcast in the same way was, I think, actually Hansa Teutonica, because the way you connect roots in Hansa Teutonica feels different to me than a lot of the other so-called root connection games. And Tower of Babel is fundamentally an area majority game, except for the fact that most of what you're doing is this bizarre sort of coopetition with other players. And I think... I I understand what you're saying in the context of Skull, because in Skull, what you want to do is you want to issue a bid such that the other opponents are doomed no matter what they do. If they raise you, they're in trouble. If they let you go away with the bid, they're they're in trouble as well. And 
this is very much uh, sometimes what you get out of Tower of Babel. Sometimes you were literally cooperating with people. You were just helping helping them build what they want to bid build. Sometimes you make an offer explicitly so as to be rejected because you get points for that. And sometimes you you know the 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 purest moments are when you make it an offer where you realize that no matter what the other person does, they're boned and you'll be fine. They can accept it or reject it. You're not indifferent, but no matter what happens, you're going to come out ahead. Mm-hmm. And this also reminds me of the bidding in another Reiner Knizia game, specifically Stevenson's Rocket. During those high stakes veto rounds where you're bidding a certain number of shares, you can know, well, either you let me take this bid, in which case I still control the railroad on stations, or you outbid me, in which case I now control it with shares. So you're doomed either way, and I get what I need. And so it's a very simple game. You're right. It lasts only about 45 minutes, all told. And it's it, it's it's quite shockingly unique in a Euro genre. And it was released uh, about 15 years ago. And at the time, I was really, you know, yearning for some new breath into the standard sort of auction and action systems that you'd see in most Euro games of the era, or maybe a little role selection, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But as I say, it's been 15 years. I haven't seen this quite replicated. It's out of print, but easily available in the secondary market. I think it's one of those things where 10 bucks will get you a, a, a copy without too much difficulty. It's one of Knizia's less appreciated works. You know, it's kind of in the same category as Rhinelander or even Stevenson's Rocket back before the reprint. One of those games released r- roughly around that five to 10 year period that people don't rate very highly. And I do not understand why, because I think it's it's not one of his top five, but you know, that's no great criticism when we're talking about Reiner Knizia. It's, but it's definitely one of his more novel games. And I Always like pulling it out every once in a while. And I'm very glad that you enjoyed Tower of Babel. So T- Tower of Babel came out in 2005, and it definitely plays like a game from 2005. It's definitely, you know, very well, very much focused on on very few mechanics. And there's not there's not a huge decision space there. But like you said, the getting that sweet point of the bid is, is the game. And it, is, it leads to some very interesting moments, for sure. I get to play QE again, QE standing for quantitative easing. I'm very gratified to see a lot of other people opening up QE and uh, really finding it interesting, apparently leading to uh, raging arguments among some people as to whether or not it is hopelessly broken. I think that the brokenness is part of the game. If you let someone run away with hyperinflation, they're going to lose. You know, anyone who breaks the economy loses. It's possible to break the economy, but, you know, there's strong disincentives to doing so. It's one of the least fragile games I can think of, despite the fact that, as I mentioned in the the, the, the previous comments about it, it's a bidding game where there's no monetary restrictions whatsoever. You can bid whatever you want. And it's all about figuring out where the economy is going, figuring out how far you can push the economy, because at the end of the game, you either want to have spent the least amount of money, in which case you get a point bonus, or the second most amount of money, thereby having profited from your availability of funds, because whoever spends the most loses. And in the process of teaching the game... I started to get we started to get at the table a, a small audience just wanting to see what people were doing and watching the tension as tiles were flipped up and and trying to come up with appropriate bids in a context of of imperfect information and immediately thereafter uh, other people just grabbed the game and started going after a, you know a two minute rules explanation so QE is a big hit both locally I think and uh, and on the interwebs, as it were. And it really is, on the context of Euro games that do interesting novel stuff, it's a great bidding game, and the way that it plays with monetary supply really changes the contours of how all the auctions work. Because the scoring is bone simple. Like I, I said pejoratively last time, it's basically like a roll of right, but actually a game. So, you know, you get points for sets, you get points for diversity, whatever. But the bidding is all where it's at, and trying to figure out where the economy is going, it's delicious. I'm looking forward to many more plays of QE. Also got to play an old classic... 
Well, not really a classic. Yeah, geez, our, our, our market moves too fast. This is only, uh, actually, it's only eight years old. This is the Ares Project. This is one of the first published designs of, not the first published design of Brian Engelstein and Jeff Engelstein. And this was one of the many board game attempts to do a real-time strategy game in a box. This is very much StarCraft with the serial numbers filed off. You've got the humans, you've got the the bugs that are totally not Zergs. They're totally not Zergs. And <laughs> except that they're totally Zergs. Except they're totally Zergs. I don't really know enough about StarCraft to comment on the rest of the factions. I've never played StarCraft. I'm not a real-time strategy guy. But I like real-time strategy in board game context. The Ares Project is very clever and gets a lot of things right in terms of building buildings and trying to supply buildings so they can churn out units and try to build the right kind of units so that you'll be able to accommodate what your opponent has developed. And all of this is happening under secrecy. You only find out what the opponent has when you fight. Moves along at a great clip. The only serious problem with the Ares Project, and it's a big one, is that you roll a very small volume of dice and hits can be very determinative. So let me just give you a specific example. It is conceivable that in the early fights, you're going to be rolling some dice looking for ones out of six, and every hit means that you're effectively neutralizing two turns that your opponent took. Now, granted, a turn is just playing a card to a building so that it will churn out units later on, but still, there can be a huge difference if early rolls don't follow a standard probability curve. And so you can have just bizarre results that will send the game crashing off the rails after the first encounter. You just have to accept that. It's one of the reasons why I don't play the Ares Project more often than I do, also because it's best at two players. There's a multiplayer version, but it's very much tacked on. But like everything the Engelstein family has done, it's very interesting, and it doesn't feel like a lot of other things out there. And in terms of capturing a lot of the RTS dynamics, I think the Ares Project gets a lot right. There are a couple of fiddly little rules, a couple of difficult things to internalize about how the combat sequence works, but all told, it's a, it's a relatively clean design and it moves along well. And you get to see a variety of units and smash them against each other, which is definitely a non-trivial source of enjoyment. So this also is an out-of-print game that can be found for about 10 bucks. So if you're at all curious at the, the concept, I sincerely recommend it. But with the caveat that if your early results are strange or aberrant, you have to be willing to call the game early or force it to a conclusion. But I guess in that sense, it's very much like a real-time strategy game anyway. You know, you can grind it out to 40 minutes, but why bother? That's right. You know, you've lost just, you know, Hit the surrender button already. Absolutely. I agree. So that was the Ares Project. Got to try Mech Command RTS. Mech Command was originally themed after Armored Core, which is a mech combat game that was developed by From Software. You have to always be careful when talking about From Software. You can't say From From Software. It's it's by From Software. Anyway, there was a bit of controversy during the Kickstarter project because it turns out that they never had the license to Armored Core in the first place. This was all aspirational. They hit the launch button a little too soon, as it were. And they eventually decided to pull the plug on the license for a variety of good reasons, including that the, you know, dealing with licensed projects is always time-consuming. And they had some concerns about stretch goals, and maybe they never thought that they could get the license in the first place. I don't know. I'm willing to assume the best from people. I'm just a naive little lamb a Pollyanna-ish type of person who thinks that everyone is all sunshine and roses. That's that's what everyone says about me. They are. Yeah. Anyway, Mech Command RTS is a real-time game. Unlike Ares Project, which seeks to emulate a real-time strategy game and is turn-based, Mech Command RTS is a real-time game that seeks to emulate uh, another real-time video game. You get to build up your mech and then uh, go at it with e each other. The, the hook is that all your actions cost energy and you're under uh, time pressure energy management. And the coolest thing about the game physically is that in Mech Command, all your mechs are on a little base with a light at the front of it. And so that's what determines line of sight. Can your light hit the opponent mech? If so, you can hit them. So you don't have to pause in the middle to calculate line of sight on a hex grid. It's just, oh, I can see the, the yellow beam on them. I'm able to hit them 
removes all disputes about line of sight very, very well. It was described uh, very humorously by Huey as anything the light touches, you can destroy. So, you know, a little bit of uh, <clears throat> Lion King crossover there. This is a very media-heavy property. I, I saw the Kickstarter for this. I was, I can't wait to try it out. It's like, you're actually like, you know, quickly, it's like real time. Like, I'm going to move over here. Can I see him? I'm going to move over here. You know, you're expending energy. And it looked like it was like one of these things that is just going to explode and fall apart, you know, right off the get go. But it seems as though it, it works. And so I'm, I'm, I can't wait to give it a try. In terms of the balance of things to do versus time pressure, I think it's darn near perfect because you have a moment. Uh, rounds are two minutes long and that gives you enough time to sit and wait for a while just to see what your opponents are going to do so you're not under a frenetic pressure but at the same time you don't have enough time so that you can carefully plot out everything to detail and the good missions have you moving support units as well as well so at that point every player has a mech and a couple of support units to, to deal with and it's just more details than you can comfortably manage which is exactly what i want out of a real-time game that's all the good stuff. And there's significant mech variation in mech command. The different mechs feel very different from each other, and you can customize the loadouts and all that. There are two negatives. One of them is personal, and one of them is... Well, they're both personal, really, but one of them I, I'm, I'm willing to attribute to unfortunate game design. The personal one is everything's got to have a campaign, and this works in a campaign as well. Now, the paperwork is minimal. It's just, okay, congratulations, you have 25 extra bucks that you can now use to buy weapons. And honestly, the campaign elements kind of fall fall away because if you want to do the one-off missions, it still works out to the same because you're given a whack of cash to go buy mechs anyhow. So it's not more mental load to go through and just keep a running tally of how much money you have. The part that I really don't like, and this is an unfortunate thing about being a game explainer, and it really comes to the foreign mech command, is I have to be a nanny. Because if you make a mistake... If you mess up the procedure, for example, let me give you one specific example. Mech Command, as a real-time game, like all real-time games, rests on certain physical conventions about how you're able to move with the components. And one of them in Mech Command is that you have to play with one hand, which is fine. I have no problem with that. It's like, this is how we want things to do. We want to make sure that it's not frenetic and calculated. So what do you do when someone in invariably breaks down and starts playing with two hands? Especially if you're playing with a fidgety person, you know who I'm talking about. Well, so there's this malfunction system. And this malfunction system, you get called on it if you use two hands, if you call a hit improperly, if you power a weapon improperly, if you do anything improperly, there's a malfunction system. And all of this is good, and all of this is necessary, and is part of a good game design. The problem is, it makes me into a malevolent nanny. Because I'm the one who knows the rules. I'm the one who taught the game. I'm the one who now has to look over all my friends and say, you didn't do that right, you didn't do that right. Penalty, penalty, penalty. Illegal it, procedure. It is exactly, precisely like the illegal procedure rule in Blood Bowl, only everywhere. It's not just at the start of the round, it's everything that anyone does ever. And it's necessary, because you have to have these conventions in a real-time game. Otherwise, you know, you can't watch everybody all the time, so everyone has to internalize the conventions very carefully. I just hate dragging everyone there. So I'm going to try to see if... <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe now that I've, you know, gone through a couple of missions with everybody now, everyone might be on the same page and maybe might be able to internalize things. But of course, we'd have to play again relatively soon to make sure that we were able to capitalize on this. But everyone had a good time and we all liked it. It wasn't brilliant, but it was very cool and it did the real-time element very, very well. So we're looking forward to f uh, future experiences with Mech Command, different weapons, different Mech Chassises. Chassises, by the way. Chassises? No, it's Chassises. The chassises? plural of ch chassis is Chassises. Trust me. I, I totally do. Yeah. I don't. 
it's getting a it got a lot of bad press for the Kickstarter dodginess, which you know sometimes happens, and I'm not going to bemoan that, but it it just is it is. But at the end of the day, the final project is very slick. All the components are beautiful and great, and all the mechs look wonderful, and the gameplay so far is very pleasant. So. Not all scenarios are created equal, so we'll see what happens going through with more scenarios, but that's been my early experience with Mech Command, and I I look forward to showing it to you if you're enthusiastic about trying it. Finally, got to play Import-Export. I've been meaning to try this for a long time, ever since it came out, really, because Import-Export is basically glory to Rome with the serial numbers filed off. This is explicitly acknowledged by the designer Jordan Draper in a lot of his designer diaries and a lot of his interviews. It is not mentioned anywhere in the rulebook, which I think is a bit unfortunate and a bit classless. All things being equal, if it were up to me, when you're going to make a game that is 95% similar to... Okay, maybe 95% is an exaggeration, but overwhelmingly similar to another game and clearly inspired by, drop an acknowledgement in the rulebook or something so that people who just have the final product and haven't read your interviews and your designer diaries elsewhere on the internet have a sense of where this thing came from. I think every game should have designer's notes, personally, but that maybe that's just the wargamer in me. Anyhow. Import-export, like Glory to Rome, is a kind of a sort of a weird tableau builder where the flow of cards are very important. Cards go from your hand to various parts of the table, then they can go into feed extra rolls, they can be used as victory points at the end of the game. We've got multi-use cards going all over the place, which the flow of cards overall is exactly the same as in Glory to Rome, even though the specific steps might be different. The areas in which import-export differs from Glory to Rome are, I will say, broadly twofold. One of them is that the powers in import-export are not as crazy. The, the old joke about Glory to Rome is that all the cards are broken, but that's what makes the game work, because everything's broken. And that's largely true. The number of insane combos and wild one-off special powers in Glory to Rome is, is really out there. Import-export, they're a little toned down. They're still pronounced, you still get little toys, but it's not nearly to the same extent. The other thing is that there were a number of changes done to the core systems, and honestly, this may just be an old Glory to Rome player's curmudgeonly attitude, but I find the changes for the worse, because there are a number of different roles, because fundamentally both Import-Export and Glory to Rome are role selection games, you know, I play this role and everyone can follow or not. A lot of the roles don't work in Import-Export unless you're loading a ship. And once all your ships are gone, once you've loaded your ships and they're out, it can take a long time for them to come back, and during that period... You have a whole bunch of roles that just don't work for you. And there's just nothing for you to do except specifically hone in on the specific thing that will get your ships back to you. Now, maybe that's just you playing badly. And by you, I'm using the general you. Do you have to send all your ships at the same time? You don't. You start with one in the middle of the ocean. And then you load up. You have another ship available for loading. So the problem is you don't have perfect control as to when your other ship comes back. It requires the often the participation or the help, uh, unwittingly or not, of other players. And so having only played it the one time, I can't comment about how pernicious a problem this is. But it was definitely the case in the context of our of our first playing. And I was an experienced Glory to Rome player. The other players hadn't played Glory to Rome. We had large stretches of the game where it's like, well, I don't have a ship I can load, so I can't do half of these roles. Especially since a lot of the other roles rest on you having surplus what I'll call capacity. In Glory to Rome, you built up your surplus capacity very quickly, to the point that it was largely irrelevant very quickly through the game. And I think what happened was Jordan Draper looked at this and said, nah, I want your capacity to be more of a bottleneck for more of the game, which is a legitimate strategic option. But what that just means is it increases the number of tactical and strategic situations where your bottleneck constrains you, further kneecapping your ability to do half the roles. So I spent a lot of the game not being able to do anything, and a lot of the other players spent a lot of the game not being able to do anything. And that wasn't cool. So you, what you... 
started with a wild and zany game where lots of interesting things happened to a more controlled experience where fewer things happened. And I don't think that was a good step. Maybe it gives you more strategic depth. Maybe if I played import-export, you know, 20, 30 times like I had Glory to Rome, I would then say, ah, you know, this is the more gamerly version. This this allows me more control. But honestly, it didn't it didn't engage me the, the same way that Glory to Rome did. And so, I, I, you know, as it is, I think it's just an inferior copy. Now, it's in print, which Glory to Rome is manifestly not. In fact, import-export is on Kickstarter as we speak. And you can get metal ships and container components and stuff like that, which honestly, quite frankly, strike me as fiddly nonsense. Because instead of playing a card to load a ship, you would discard a card to the discard pile and then take a token representing that card and putting it on your metal ship. And so it doesn't strike me as a significant gain usability-wise. But what do I know? I'm a Luddite. So import-export, I think, is an in, sometimes interesting variation, but altogether, I think, pale imitation of Goiderome. Now, that having been said, the people I played with we're very, very fond of it, so I'm probably going to end up playing it again, so probably more to follow. But that is my early response to Import-Export. And those are the games we played this week. On to the news, and why it does not matter. Cyberpunk. I love it. It's a great genre. How many cyberpunks do you want out of your life? I want 2,077. Well, I have, I have good news for you. That is the number of cyberpunks that the market is going to be supplying you before Sweet. too long. Sweet. Simon coming out with a cyberpunk 2077 card game. Looking forward to seeing how that turns out. All my news is Simon news. I'm just going to go into the next one because sure. then that will be almost finishing me up. Simon also announced Ankh, Gods of Egypt. It's going to be, looks sounds though like it's going to be their, their big one for the year. Now they're, guess what? Eric Lang's involved in this one. Here's the thing. Here's the thing though. I saw the announcement. From I'm signed up to Simon's newsletter for reasons passing understand. I should unsubscribe to all these things. And I saw, you know, from from game, you know, game design lead Eric Lang, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, sure. He walked, he was in earshot when they were pitching the idea. And so now it's like, no, this appears to be actually an Eric Lang design. And it looks good. It's going to be, I'm sure, another gigantic miniature extravaganza. And let's hope that there's some mechanics to back those up. It would be nice. Yeah, this is the third in his, he's now calling it his mythic trilogy, starting with Blood Rage, which we both love, Rising Sun, which you like a lot more than I do, and now Ankh. I was so, I was sufficiently disappointed in Rising Sun that I'm trying not to get my hopes up. I like Egyptian mythology. Uh, you know, we both like Kemet. Kemet, in Kemet, the mythology is very much at arm's length. You know, you don't really talk about, the, the, the gods aren't name checked, the monsters are kind of generic, but, you know, still enjoy it despite that. So uh, yeah, we'll see. It, this is this is this Kickstarter project is going to be in 2020, I think, right? I know. I think they said by the end of this year. Oh wow. Okay, I stand corrected. Great. Up on Kickstarter now, there is the what I'm calling the second edition of Fiasco. Fiasco is one of my favorite role playing systems by Jason Morningstar at Bully Pulpit Games. This is one of this is probably the most popular in America anyway of the game masterless narrative role playing games. This is the game of high ambition and low impulse control. It's like playing a Coen Brothers movie where a whole bunch of lowlifes get together and do something stupid and everything falls apart. And because everything's a one shot, you get to have the sadomasochistic thrill of watching all your terrible lowlifes make terrible decisions and everything falls apart. I really like Fiasco. I, I prefer some of Morningstar's other stuff, uh, the uh, specifically Durant's, which I'm probably going to try to run at, uh, at Chuck's, so if you're interested, try to hit me up there. But anyway, 
Fiasco is still really good, and they're trying to now make it a little bit more newbie-friendly, because Fiasco, as it currently stands, is just a book product that you then have to, you know, fudge up the rest of the, the details yourself, which can be intimidating for new players. It's already a format that a lot of people aren't familiar with. Most people, when they do role-playing games, think of D&D or something like it. Uh, so already this whole Game Masterless stuff is a bit intimidating, but now it's going to be a box set with cards and everything, so it'll just be like the red box, you know, this is the starter set, and this is what I have, and this is all that I need. And there's going to be print and plays and new rule sets and, and uh, new play sets, rather, and, and, and the whole thing. And I thoroughly recommend for anybody that is getting a little bit, who likes role-playing games or is interested in trying role-playing games but doesn't want to do the standard, I'm going to kick the door down and murder everything on the other side and steal all their trinkets, Fiasco is a great way to get started, and it's a blast. You can find it on the Kickstarter, Fiasco. Final bit of news. The world has been holding its breath, wanting to know where my copy of Pox Palmer's second edition was. I've gotten more tweets and emails about this issue <laughs> than anything else over the past few months. I had an extremely generous listener say that they had an extra copy of Pox Palmer's second edition. They would send it to us to make up for my lost one. That was extremely appreciated. But it has been discovered. I'll just point out, it was not in the uh, list of places that were initially flagged by my dear partner, uh, Mike Walker, who very, very kindly, and this is, I think this is, this is an indication of my love and affection for this man, because when I started to explain how I couldn't find the game, and I probably left it somewhere in New England, he said, did you check your travel bag? Now, normally, if any other human being had said this to me, I would have dialed the sarcasm up to 11 and then proceeded to make fun of him for the next five minutes, because of course I checked the travel bag. I'm not an idiot. But... Walker was trying to be nice. He was feeling for me. I could tell that this was out of empathy and and, and affection. So, you know. Anyway, uh, the reason why I thought it was lost was because all the places where I thought it could have been reported back in the negative that it wasn't there. But it turns out that a man who I shall dub for these purposes Boston Dewey was mistaken. And it wasn't Boston Dewey's after all, after he had told me that it wasn't there and it couldn't have been there because it would have shown up by now. And it has shown up, so it is on its way back to us. Thank you all for your thoughts, your prayers, your letters, your vigils, the marches, the campaigning, the the petitions, the potluck, the pot, the potluck events. Yes, it was fantastic. The Tupperware parties. It was all very, very much appreciated. The key parties, less so. Thanks for that. I mean, great, whatever, but not necessary. Pox Palmer Second Edition will be back in our hands soon enough, so we'll be able to play it a second time, and uh, possibly give more reactions then. So. Everyone can take a deep breath and relax. Pox Palmer Second Edition will be returned to us. Whew. You know that that was a, a a whirlwind week of 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 anxiety and 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 wonder. I laughed. I cried. I lost fifteen pounds. Oof! It was a whole journey. And that was the news and why it doesn't matter. Onto the topic, which is Gen Con and what I would have done had I gone to Gen Con two thousand nineteen. I'm just going to start it off like I always do. Sure. Is is that I can play games here. I don't. I, 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 don't, I don't normally travel to conventions anymore. Just because of the way globalism has now worked, we pretty well get games the same time everybody else does, really. You know, there are a few exceptions, but not, not worth going to said place. That being said, there are some games that you can get months, if not weeks, before they even come out. And that's usually the only reason I go. I almost spend my entire time walking around the retail section, seeing new games, seeing demo games, checking out new stuff, 
the very first year I went, I bought tickets and I just found them more of a hassle trying to rush around, trying to get to these events. I never made that mistake again. Unless you want to play an older game, then buy tickets for that because it's not going to... Otherwise, the game you want to play is getting played somewhere. You'll run into it. You always want to be open because there's always stuff going on. There's like rooms everywhere. You stick your head in. There's the game you want to play. It's just starting. It's happening. It's on the floor. It's somewhere. I always just keep myself open because there's always something fun going on that you always want to just get into and and scheduled games usually get in the way. Well, thinking about the things that I would have... So thinking back at the Gen Con I went, which was 2016, and thinking about the things that I would have done at this Gen Con, it was less about playing specific games and more about the people that I'd like to see. Because there are a couple of people that, you know, you kind of sort of know on the internet or you know of through the internet, and conventions are a nice nice place to be able to get to meet all of them and not necessarily play a game with them because, quite frankly, despite the fact that, you know, I I want to to play games with new people, mostly I would rather – it's not – I don't think it's a good way to meet people playing a game for the first time. Uh, There are some exceptions, but just – Personally, it's, it's not my bag. So I have, I have three sets of things that I was thinking of that I would, would have done at Gen Con. Specific events, people that I would have liked to have met or talked to, and the specific games I would have liked to have come home with. I only did games. That, only that. because I, I Because you of, don't like people. Well, no, it's not and... just that. I, I brought <laughs> up like the event calendar and the scheduling, sure. and I just went, no sure. thanks. Because it's just not my thing. Like, if there was... That being said, if there was a panel that was talking about, uh, like, the review process on, like, how they review games or, uh, you know, podcasting setup or sure. or video things like professional that. Professional development. Yeah, professional development like that, all in for that. Otherwise, just, it's really not my thing. All right, Are you suggesting that people have anything to teach us about anything? Uh, everything. Like I am shocked. I have no idea what I'm doing. Anyway. Okay, well, why don't I... start, and I feel bad because I I just went over this list, and and there are hooks on some of these, and I I put these in here because of this particular thing, and I've I've almost completely forgotten anything. But anyway, and I I didn't put any publishers in here, so that's really awesome of me. That's fine. So... Why don't you let me start then with specific things that I would have liked to have done, and then we can talk about games, and then finally I'll talk about about people. Well, I would have liked to have done some kind of swag meetup of some kind, right? Yes. Some opportunity to come and just... You and I could have just been like playing Space Hulk somewhere in the corner and just so people could have come by and said hello or something because there are a number of, of listeners who have expressed a desire to meet us. I don't know why. These are clearly very foolish people uh, who want to be exposed to our hideous misshapen forms. But it would have been nice to be able to have some opportunity to say hello to one or two people because I remember when I went to, to, to Gen Con the other, the other time, there were a couple of people who recognized me from my video reviews and it was nice talking to them. And I would have liked to have been able to repeat that kind of experience. Uh, I also liked doing the math trade at Gen Con, and that's something that you don't get to do at many, many opportunities. It's a great way to save huge amounts on shipping and get a whole bunch of new games at Gen Con without paying a whole lot of money. And the math trade, when I, I participated in that other time, was really, really well organized, despite the fact that it was no money was involved and it was a huge number of people. And finally, the, the, the last sort of event that I would have liked to have done at Gen Con was every year there's this long talk by the makers of Infinity, the miniatures game, about what they're going to be doing in the future with 
unit designs and sketches and talks about where the universe is going to be going and all manner of new miniatures and stuff like that. And I very much would have liked to have been able to see that because honestly, scattered scattered screenshots of new minis doesn't really get, give me a sense of scope. But being able to say, look, this is how we envision the product line going and, and so forth. And I've seen clips of the presentation before and it's really very, very interesting to hear them talk about their process. And that's usually be given by a very interesting guy who goes by the name of Bostria. I met him at Gen Con very, very briefly, but it's just enough to say, hi, I love you. I, lo I, lo I love what you do. And then I left. Uh, it was not very professional of me. And uh, I'm sure he gets lots of that anyway. So those are, those are some of the things that I would have only been able to do at some sort of convention. And some of this we'll be able to pick up on at Shucks in October. But so those are some of the things that I would have done at, at Gen Con. So why don't you talk about some of the games you would have wanted to come back with? All right. Let me blast through a couple of these. There's a game. There was a movie out long time ago called Tremors about this giant worm. There's a Tremors game? There is. It's called Terror Below. Uh, is it, wait, is it licensed or is it just like... No, it's not licensed. Uh, it's called Terror Below. Look, if, no Kevin Bacon, no deal. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, anyway, go on, it's, go, on it's, go on. It's, it's just, it uses, it's that setting, that theme where this there's this giant worm and you're like, and you're trying to like escape this giant worm. You had worm. me so excited for well, half a moment you'll there. Maybe you like it. Maybe it's, it'll give you that same feel. And then there's two games that are very similar. One is called Detective Club and Obscuro. Apparently, they're very much like Mysterium, very much, uh, you know, using cards to, you know, tell a story. But the difference in both of these is the fact that there is a traitor element. Then there is a fantastic book thing. If you have children, I, 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 I don't want to say you must get this, but <laughs> oh my God, it seems so interesting that... I'm going to buy it and give it out as gifts for people who have children. So we've all heard of choose your own adventure. So imagine if you get a set of books that come together where everyone plays their own character and it's the same story, but what, and everyone turns to the same page, but because your character is different, your story's a little bit different, right? Boom. That, that sounds great. Did your mind just explode? Oh my goodness. But this is a book for children, Mark, and it's like a comic book. So like there's the tall kid, there's the strong kid, and there's, and it's, and it's illustrated, right? So naturally you gravitated towards those two roles, right? Well, I, and there's the weird <laughs> kid that can talk to animals, and then there was some, something else. But anyway, so imagine you're the tall kid. You know, it says, okay, everyone turn to page 35, and you go to 35, and there's a picture there. But only you can see over the fence because you're the tall kid. Oh my goodness! I know. Doesn't that sound amazing? And and and, and you, or you come to this wall, and there's like, if you're the strong kid, there's like a number there or something because only you can punch through the wall. So just stuff like that. Oh wow! Doesn't it sound amazing? Anyway, What's it called? It is called. It is called Caruso. Sorry, my computer. Caruso. Caruso Club. Caruso. As in David. One moment. As in CSI Miami? As in computer... As in terrible pun followed off. by sunglasses? It is called Crusoe Crew. Okay. And I'm, I'm dying to, to, to just you know look through it. Apparently, they said you can play about four times, right? And then you've gone through this story all the different times that you... All the different ways that you can. Anyway, Crusoe Crew, check it out. Really cool choose-your-own-adventure book series. This is probably on your list, Cloud Spire. We definitely want to have that. It's by the same people that did uh, Too Many Bones. It's the, you know, whole bunch of mouse pad map tiles. And it's like more like an adventure type thing using the same sort of, you know, poker chip sort of thing. I've got it on pre-order. I probably would have picked it up had I gone to Gen Con, as in picked up my, my order early. Uh, yes, I, I, I am keen on trying it. I'm not terribly optimistic, though. Again, under the aegis of lots of games have tried to do the real-time strategy thing. It's been done a lot. We'll see. Two expansions that I'd want to try while I was there. 
uh, the Innis expansion only because I, I sort of really liked Innis. I know it was like it it hit a lot of parts that are were really good, yet it just you know fell apart at the end. I agree. So I'm just wondering if this expansion fixes any of that, or you know, will bring it back to the table more. The Teotihuacan expansion, definitely want to see it. I think it's a you know one of these multi part expansions where you can pick and choose all two these- cacao, two furious. Exactly. Bruno Cathala has a game out called Ishtar. I have the Kickstarter for Reavers of Midgard, so I don't want to take a look at that. Apparently, it's getting pretty good reviews. It looks like it's going to be fun. Pandemic, yeah. for the first time today, I saw video shots of Pandemic Rapid Response, and it looks completely different. Yeah, it's not really... I, I've, I've read the rules. I have a copy. We haven't played it yet. It does not look much like a Pandemic game at all. You have Pandemic Rapid Response. Yes. And we haven't played it yet. Yes. I hate you so much. Okay. Anyway, yes. Sierra West. There's a game called coming out called Sierra West, and it looks a lot like a Granja, where it has these cards that slide underneath your player board, and it will give you different things. It looked very interesting. Game that everyone's talking about. I want to try it out because I am a huge fan of dice worker placement games. There is a game called Black Angel, and it and it looks very interesting. I'm very, I want to give it a try. I have Black Angel on my list largely because of the designer Xavier Georges who designed Ginkopolis. This is largely by the design team that did Trois, which is also a sort of a dicey worker placement thing. I only played Trois once and it didn't grab me, but I'm led to believe that that is because I am very wrong and have bad taste. So I've been meaning to try Trois again and I've been meaning to take a look at Black Angel because it, it I mean, it very, it looks very compelling. It's a very striking graphic design and I generally like sci-fi. So yeah, I, I, I'm interested in Black Angel too, and like la- the rest of the world. And last on my list is uh, just the game I pulled out of the Kickstarter just because it looked like it was getting slowly out of control and that was Edge of Darkness because it's done by the AEG, the same people that did uh, the Mystic Veil card system, and it's the same sort of thing. You're sliding in all these cards, and you're building these decks, and it has like a three-way multi-dice cube drop tower, and it just looked like it was one of these projects that was going to be a nightmare, so I I pulled out. But apparently it's getting getting good buzz, so I'd I'd like to give it a try. Yeah, we have Edge of Darkness incoming, so when we do, that's exciting. Yeah, Uh, I'm waiting for John D. Clare to pull it all together. Because he's he did Mystic Veil vale and he did Custom Heroes and everything I've done by him has been close to being a good game. It's had some clever bits, but it hasn't really cohered. And so I keep hoping that the next time is going to be the time. So maybe it's Edge of Darkness, maybe not. Who who knows? We'll see. So uh, some of the games I was interested in uh, a shorter list. Uh, one of them is Iron Forest. You're the one who initially pointed this out to me. It's by the same people who did Ice Cool, but now instead of penguins running around getting fish, it's mechs running around in a multi-level game board where you mount the box on on stilts and you can fall down from one level to another and all that stuff. So more flicking excellence. We love ourselves some some dexterity games, especially if they've got cool components. And I really liked Ice Cool. I thought it was great. Uh, the skill horizon was just about perfect. You could start practicing shots so that you didn't have to spend hours and hours practicing to get hook shots. But any game where you can start doing competent hook shots but still have room to perfect them within a few attempts is definitely good. So that that component was excellent. I'm curious about Point Salad, which is a drafting game, and it's drafting from face-up tableau. Still looking to find the next ba- the next good drafting game. I want to try Greed by Donald X. Vaccarino. Some A lot of people don't like it, but some people do. And Point Salad was getting a lot of good buzz. And this is to be differentiated, of course, from the Greater Than Games joke game called Point Salad, the Salad Building Game. Or Deck Builder, the Deck Building Game. Or Trader Mechanic, the Trader Mechanic Game. Yes, yes. Anyway, that being said, like I said, uh, AEG, I think, has really brought their game up 
lately, right? They've I agree. With some, they had some pretty awful games. They're you know much like the they're the ones that put out like the Naruto game and they've had some licensed right, stuff. They 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 do a lot of in house stuff that seems a bit rushed. And they've been around for a long time. And they've always had some good stuff. Like I, I I'm still a fan of Thunderstone, and Thunderstone's been kicking around ever since the early days of Dominion. Uh, so it's they, they've never been universally bad, but yeah, I think of late they've been they they've been putting out some more impressive stuff. There's another expansion to Shards of Infinity called Shadow of Salvation. This is one of those things I always have to look up because their expansion names don't make any sense. And uh, I really enjoyed the last expansion. Still really like Shards of Infinity, so more stuff is always good. Infinity is going to be putting out a uh, co-op dungeon crawler, and despite the fact that I'm sick to death of that genre, I will still try more of that genre. And they were they were just having demos of it. It's called Infinity Defiance. And so I very much like to see if they were doing anything different, because if they're not, I can just ignore it and not pay any attention to it anymore in the context of a demo. There's the new game by Fabio Lopiano called Ragusa or Ragusa. This is the designer of Kalamala, and Kalamala was more or less his first published design, and so I was very much looking forward to what he, what he did next. Ragusa is getting some mixed reviews. A lot of people say that it's interesting but weird, which sounds a little bit like Kalamala in that it was interesting but weird. And so who knows? I'm, so I'm looking forward to trying that. Black Angel, as you already said. And finally, the, the last thing that I probably would have done is I probably would have visited the Osprey booth and come back with a lot of game, a lot of uh, miniature rule sets. Uh, they're the publisher who has been, who does a whole lot of really, really interesting miniatures rule sets. And I probably just would have gotten weak, weak in the knees and just come off with a half dozen or so titles if they were there. The one thing that I wanted to look at, they did something at this Gen Con that they have not done in any others. And there's, pl- there's this place you can go to where you can, if you get, like overtired or sleepy, you can go and sleep. Oh yeah, you gotta Very have a nap room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called the FFG uh, announcement uh, panel. <laughs> yeah, so I I did notice. So th- this is kind of neither uh, games we we would have we would have done or uh, you know events or people we would have liked to see. I, I have to say, it really does look like Fantasy Flight. It really is just taking its slow drift into irrelevance. As far as, you know, serious hobby gaming is concerned, because they, so Corey Kaneska, of whom I'm not a huge fan, but at least he was one of the only guys still doing original IPs. You know, we, you know, say what you want about Discover Lands Unknown. At least it was not a Star Wars or other licensed property. But now he's gone. He's going to be doing his own imprint. Kind of under the aegis of FFG, but kind of not. And FFG is now into the Marvel business, and as we all know, Marvel is the center of creativity. And (laughs) it's ridiculous, Mark. Like, I have been busy for the past few months with stuff and I was legitimately excited because I hadn't looked up too much Gen Con stuff. We said we were going to do this. I said, and then it occurred to me, it's like fantasy flight. I got to go to their site because they always announce cool stuff. Yeah. Like, are you serious? A Marvel card game. They're pretty much exclusively in the business of churning out licensed properties now. And it just really seems like they're doubling down on that. And, and I always compare this to the, the, the new movie schedule, right? Yeah. Cause they, they, these some of these companies are just sticking with what's safe and reprints, yeah. right? Which which I don't know is a good thing or not. absolutely. Now, some people are very excited about the Marvel card game because it's being designed by the same person who did the Lord of the Rings LCG and the Arkham Horror LCG. That doesn't really do anything for me. I never tried the Lord of the Rings LCG because I hate Tolkien, and the Arkham Horror LCG did nothing for me. But in that as well, I'm seriously in the minority. Most people who tried it loved it. But, I mean, honestly, I, I, I really... Anything associated with Marvel just generates no enthusiasm for me at all. So, who knows? Well, like, there's so many of these superhero card games already. Like, <laughs> Anyway. 
All right. Finally, there are the people I would have liked to have uh, met at, at Gen Con. I'll just do this briefly because uh, Walker doesn't like meeting anyone. He doesn't even like meeting me, but that just indicates he has good taste. Apparently, Luzaki of Game Science was at Gen Con. Many of you have probably seen Luzaki without knowing it. He's the guy who has that brilliant YouTube video explaining why his dice have a blemish and explaining how casino dice are machined and st- he shows stacked D20s. Anyway, if you haven't seen this, I'll post a link in the, the episode description. It's a brilliant discussion of dice and dice manufacturing. He's an interesting guy and he's been in the industry forever. And he's also got a Charles S. Roberts Award for uh, Lifetime Achievement and Wargame Design. So apparently he was he was at Gen Con. I would have loved to have gone and bought a fistful of D20s from him because it is actually hard to find good, cheap dice or at all. So I would have liked to have bought some, you know, expensive dice from him because I remember actually just, in, again, in the context of Infinity, I bought five D20 from uh, eBay and they showed up and they were so bad. I didn't think that I would be able to notice aberrant results in dice because I don't tend to, to notice patterns too much. They were so terrible that after literally just 20 seconds of just rolling them around, it was clear how ovoid they were and how aberrant the results they were they were going to get. And so anyhow, that gave me a newfound appreciation for Luzaki and for well-made dice. I would have liked to have met a couple of fellow reviewers with whom I, uh, that, that I respect just to be able to talk shop and, uh, you know, complain about some of our colleagues. Uh, it would have... Uh, some people, again, people I know on the internet who I know were doing meetups of their own at Gen Con. It would have been nice to, to, to say hi and put a, some in some cases, a face to the name or in some cases uh, just introduce myself if they uh, uh, and, and let them know that I like their stuff because it, it's nice to hear that. As far as meeting designers goes, it's always a little bit tricky. I, I, I released an editorial uh, a couple months ago about how awkward I feel about this because it's, you know, the relationship between most reviewers and some designers is a little bit uncomfortable because we're here to review a product, not necessarily talk about what our friends are doing because those are two different kinds of things and editorial objectivity starts to get a little bit tricky in those contexts. But I would have liked to have spent some time with Chris Cheslick, who's a friend of mine. Uh, he was demoing a GNC, which is the new Carl Chudik tableau builder with, of course, multi-use cards and all manner of zany things. I got to try it when I was in uh, Boston. It's, it's you know, interesting and weird, like most of Carl Chudik's designs. I would have liked to have met Jim Felly, who's a fascinating designer. I've corresponded with him a couple times, and it would have been nice to, to be able to put a face to the name and uh, demo his game about uh, giant cosmic frogs, because, you know, representation in games is important. And finally, just in terms of people to meet, I was just thinking about conventions, and I often rag on conventions, but I just wanted to mention something in closing, and this is this is the last thing I'll say about conventions, because my favorite experience in both Gen Con when I went and PAX East when I went, I went to the first PAX East, again, early conventions to convince me that I didn't like conventions, and in both of those, the highlight of both events was talking with a man by the name of Robert Gifford, who was the founder of and CEO of Geek Chic. Now, Geek Chic unfortunately went the way of the Dodo uh, in in rather unfortunate uh, bankruptcy proceedings. It was a whole mess, but I'm not going to talk about that. It's just he was a great guy to talk to and had lots of interesting things to say. At PAX East, we talked about architecture and the relationship between architecture and furniture design. He had lots of interesting things to say there. And at the uh, Gen Con event where I met, he didn't remember me, but he was very gracious with his time. He took me into what he called his speakeasy, which was the, you know, behind the scenes at, at the booth where he he was serving all kinds of spirits, and I told him that I didn't drink, and he actually listened, unlike most people who say, you know, you haven't found the right drink or whatever, and he taught me how to drink. He taught me how to drink spirits, which, and I had the best drinking experience of my life then. I didn't get drunk or anything. I had a couple of drinks, but they didn't taste like rubbing alcohol, and they didn't make me want to choke. Anyhow, 
extremely nice guy. And that's that's the, my primary regret. I bring this up because that's my primary regret about not being able to go to conventions. It's those little social interactions that you weren't expecting, that you weren't planning on having. And with people that you wouldn't necessarily think uh, you have a lot to talk about. And Robert Gifford was just this wonderful guy who spared a lot of time for some random dude who didn't buy any of his tables or didn't buy any of his stuff, but had some interesting things to say about the hobby more generally and about his business and, and about his plans for the future. And that honestly is my sole regret, my sole, my sole serious regret for not going to more conventions. It's, it's, it's not having interactions like that. I'm going to tack on a quick interaction as well that's almost... Almost as good, not quite. Cosplaying at these events are, you know, sometimes silly and sometimes not. But the one one interaction that I witnessed was fantastic. I there's this one artist that I always go see at Gen Con, and I have tons of his art in in my house and stuff like that, or in my gaming area. And uh, him and I talked for a bit, and then I was looking through some art, and I, he was talking with someone else. I saw this young lady come up. And he had done some Magic the Gathering art, and his his main card was this huge poster that was beside his booth. And this young lady had hit it spot on. Like, she could have stood beside this poster, and you almost could not tell the difference. And she was, you could tell how eager she was to talk to him. He hadn't even noticed her yet, and as soon as he turned around and saw her, like, the the interaction of their eyes and stuff, it was just, it was, it was almost, you know, you know, you felt it in your chest. It was fantastic, and it was a great, I was so glad that I got to be there to witness it. Even curmudgeons like us can acknowledge that at conventions, magical things can happen. There you go. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.